in this third talk will speak um, continuing with what we've discussed in the previous talks. <clears throat> Today we'll move on to the subject of vipassana or insight, specifically the nine das or eyes of insight. Now this word da, or this syllable da, is Pali, from the Pali language. But coincidentally, it also has a meaning in Thai. Da is the Thai word for the physical eye, the E-Y-E. However, in Pali, it has another meaning. It means a state of being or some being of state. And then so when we use this, this word da, we must be clear whether we're using it in the Thai meaning or in the Pali meaning of this word or sound. In general, when you use this word da, use it in the Pali meaning. However, if you use it in the Thai context or while speaking Thai, then be careful because its meaning becomes the I, the, the physical I. We have two of them in our, in our faces. In addition to the meaning of the physical eyes, Da also means to see or seeing. The connection is, of course, that we see with the eyes. So the word I or da also has the sense of to see or seeing. Now, when we use da in the Pali meaning of the term, <coughs> it means a state of being. But we can't just say state of being. We have to refer to, you know, we have to know what state of being or the state of being of what. And so we can't, we, da has to be used with other words which specify the state of being what or what kind of state of being. And so there are certain natural facts which are referred to by the, when we use the term state of being. We'll look at these one by one. So when we talk about these states of being, we refer to certain facts of nature, certain natural conditions which are inherent in natural things. To speak of these, and we call these the nine das. So we'll look at each of these, these naturally existing conditions or the truths, these natural truths of, of things. Now for convenience in speaking, we call these the 
nine eyes of vipassana or the nine das of vipassana. Vipassana or means to see clearly, to see distinctly, clearly, and we usually translate it as insight. And then we speak of insight in terms of these nine das or eyes, the the seeing of these nine eyes. If you understand what we mean by this, it will enable you to use this these principles throughout your lives, which will be of great value. We can speak of the insight of or into the nine das, or we can speak about the nine das or eyes of insight. The We can switch the wording either way. The meaning, nonetheless, is the same. In our first talk, we looked at how everything is blazing, how everything is on fire. In the second talk, we looked at how dependent origination is both the arising and the quenching of those fires, of those flames. In today's talk, we're going to look at the things which will quench the fires, which will put out the flames. Now, these seven eyes of insight can be compared to the ultimate fire protection. These nine das will make one fireproof, totally fireproof, so none of the fires can can burn one ever again. Or if we were to speak in terms of disease and illness, we can say these nine insights of vipassana are the ultimate vaccination. They vaccinate us totally against all spiritual disease. These are a few ways to look at the importance of the nine das. Now you've been practicing mindfulness with breathing for for many days now, and you've already taken a look at how the entire practice of mindfulness with breathing unfolds. You studied the four different stages or tetrads of the practice. Now we come when we come to the last or fourth stage of practicing mindfulness with breathing, this is called Dhammanu Patsana, the contemplation of Dhamma. And the first lesson in this is to contemplate impermanence, which is the first, the first Da is impermanence. And from contemplating that, <coughs> one goes deeper and deeper <coughs> into the natural truth of things. And the other, the other nine das reveal themselves or become apparent one by one until bringing one to what is called virata, 
which we can say is the fading away of detach of attachment, the breaking up and dissolving of defilement, which is the natural result of seeing the nine das. Now in the specific explanation of mindfulness with breathing, when we come to the first lesson of contemplating Dhamma, it's called the contemplation of anicca <clears throat> contemplating the fact of impermanence. Specifically, it only mentions impermanence, but if one really sees and looks into impermanence, then one sees all the other das as well. If one looks deeply, all of them are revealed. So one should not be confused by the fact that it mentions just impermanence. One must understand that here impermanence includes all the other das, or means, refers to all the other das as well. Now when you see impermanence, and we mean really seeing for oneself, not depending on reading books or having somebody else tell us, but when we directly, clearly experience the state of impermanence, the fact of impermanence, which is called anicca then we realize spontaneously that all these things that are changing, to be associated with them or connected with them, to be involved in things which are in a state of flux, when their state of being is one of flux, of impermanence, we see that this is tormenting, that it is painful to be involved with impermanent, constantly changing things. And this is to realize dukkata, dukkata, which is the state of being painful, state of being tormenting. When one sees or experiences the fact of impermanence, that things are constantly flowing, which they're just a ceaseless stream, and that this is inherently painful, hard to bear, then how can any of that be self? How can any of that be grasped at or clung to as being me or being mine? When one sees these facts of this state of being impermanent and of being painful, then one realizes that there's no way that any of that or any of this can be self or can belong to self. There's just no possibilities, there's nothing in there that can be considered self or belonging to self. Realizing this is to realize anatata, the state of being not self, the fact of not self. In realizing the facts of impermanence and of the inherent painfulness of things, seeing that all these constantly changing things that whoever 
is, gets involved with them will suffer to see that all things bite their owner and that they can't be, that, they're, that they have, haven't got anything that one can consider, can rightly take to be me or mine. Then seeing this more deeply, one realizes this is just the way things naturally are. This is the, the nature of things, that they're naturally this way. This is how things ordinarily are. These facts are nothing special or strange. These are just the ordinary natural way of things. This is called Tamatitata, Tamatitata, which means the, st the standing Tita in nature, Dhamma of things. So the state of just naturally being like that. It's called Dhamatitata. In seeing that this is how things naturally are, then one then one sees what makes them that way. What makes all these things to be impermanent, um, inherently miserable and not self? One sees that there is something which we could, we could imagine to be God if we chose. We could call it God if we were inclined. But here we we see it more as being the law of nature, the tama niyama, tama niyama, the law of nature or the natural order is just that things are this way. What makes things impermanent, unsatisfying and not self is just the law of nature. The law of nature is that things are this way. Notice realizing this fact is called tamaniyamata, tamaniyamata, the state of being under the law of nature. This is the natural orderliness of things. Those who believe in a God, especially a creator God, will then see, think, or believe that it's God that makes things this way. God created things in such a way. People who are more primitive, maybe such as animists, will attribute this to spirits, that it's the spirits or the world, the powers or whatever that makes things this way. But the Buddhist attributes this to the Tamaniyam or the Dhamma the law of nature, the natural order. What makes things this way is simply the law of nature. When seeing that everything is under the law of nature, that the law of nature dominates everything, and that they can't be any other way. It's, it just means it's no, there's no point in trying to think about what if they were different. They just, that's just how they are. 
and they can't be different. Then one realizes the fact of sunyata, sunyata, or voidness, that all things which are under this law of nature, which are constantly flowing in impermanence and so on, that they are void of self, void, they lack any essence or substance that can be taken to be a self. So they are void of self, void of me and mine. This realization is to the realization of the fact of being void or voidness, sunyata. Now, sunyata has a very specific meaning. It, sunyata refers to one particular thing. It means that things are void of any meaning, any meaning that can be taken to be self or belonging to self. Sunyata means that things are void of any value, any value that can be taken to be self or of self. And things are void of any trait or property, any characteristic or feature that can be taken to be self or atta, atman, or anything belonging to atta or self. So sunyata refers specifically to being absolutely void of self or anything connected to self, whether in meaning or value or features or characteristics or anything of that sort. One cannot attribute selfhood to things in any way. This is the meaning of, of sunyata. Now this word sunyata is rather difficult to translate and translations of it can lead to misunderstanding. In fact, all the translations of it are frequently misunderstood. Sometimes the translations themselves are rather confused. For example, there are some people who've translated sunyata as nothingness to mean that there's absolutely nothing, which is ridiculous. Sunyata does not mean nothingness or some kind of ultimate vacancy or a vacuum. Sunyata, simply, everything is, all these things are, they exist, but their form of existence is one that is void of self, void of any meaning of self or belonging to self. Commonly, sunyata is translated as emptiness, but empty, sunyata does not mean being empty like a glass or a bottle is empty. To speak of emptiness usually gives people some material idea of sunyata. So we feel the best translation is voidness. 
Not that, thing, not that nothing exists or not that things are empty in a material way, but that things are void, void of self, void of any meaning or quality or value that can be taken as self or related to self. This is what we mean by voidness. Excuse us a little bit. Um, we accidentally skipped one of the das. Um, sunyata is the seventh. Before sunyata, there is a sixth. In realizing that seeing this is just the natural way of things, and seeing that everything is under the law of nature, that everything is the way it is due to the law of nature. Then one comes to the sixth da, which is to see that everything flows or proceeds according to causes and conditions. The existence of things, the change of things, the falling away of things, the arising, the passing away, the, not, the existence or non-existence, of things is due to causes and conditions. All things are dependent on other factors, on other conditions. This interrelatedness is called itapajayata, which means the fact of going according to causes and conditions. So we can translate it as conditionality. This is the heart of Dhamma. This is the law of nature. And it's the heart of the very important concern of ours, which we call dependent origination. The essence of dependent origination is this itapajayata, that everything happens or doesn't happen according to causes and conditions. And this, this insight into conditionality then leads to the insight into sunyata, that there is no reason to consider anything as being self or belonging to self. So conditionality leads to voidness. When the mind experiences these in succession, all these das one by one, the mind comes to the realization that things are just like that. Things couldn't be otherwise, that this is just the way things the way things are, or the they're just thus, they're just such. This is the realization of datada or thusness, suchness. Things can't or things just aren't other than, than thus. They're merely thus. They're just like, they're just such wise. It sounds like maybe we're just playing games with words or just making a joke to say that everything is just like that. But these words are incredibly serious because they're very profoundly true. 
that all things, they're not like over there or over there, they're just thus. This is tathata or thusness. One sees that one can't discriminate things as being positive or negative. That whether taking it to be positive or negative, it's just not possible. Things are just thus. There's no, there's no room or no excuse or no, no way that they can really be seen as positive or negative seeing that things are neither positive nor negative, that they're merely thus, is what tathāta is about. In seeing that things are merely thus, that they just, they have this suchness, then the mind becomes still, the mind becomes truly quiet. The mind is no longer conditioned by things. The mind is no longer under the power of or concocted by things. This is called atamayata. Maya means made of or made from. A means not, so atamayata means to be not made from anything, not made up or made of or made from anything. When the mind has realized these, all these facts of things to the point of seeing thusness, then it becomes still. And in this stillness, in this being unaffected or uninvolved with things, the mind realizes atamayata, the state of not being made up of or made up by anything. Atamayata is seeing the mind that is no longer tricked by positive and negative, the mind that is above all the positive and negative in the world. So now let's check a minute and see if we can remember these nine words. If one realizes the full meaning of these words, then that is very important. When one fully realizes these nine words, then all problems cease. So let's review them quickly. First is anicetta, the fact of impermanence. Then tukata, or the fact of being painful, miserable. Anatata, the state of being not self. Tamatitata, the naturalness of all this. Tamatitata, that things are under the law of nature the tapajayata, the conditionality of things, sunyata, voidness, tathāta, thusness, and then finally, atamayata, the mind that is perfectly still and beyond the positive and negative or any duality in things.
realizing all of these is then to have transcended or gone beyond all problems. This is the mind that is free, that is released from, from suffering. So it's quite important to, to understand these and then to fully realize their meaning. So please try to remember these nine Pali words. Please remember them so that you will become more and more familiar with them and then their meaning. These nine are the pinnacle or summit of insight knowledge. The understanding that comes through insight is, is gathered in these nine words or these nine states of being. This is the highest knowledge there is. When one has these nine peaks of, of understanding or wisdom, then nothing can blaze into fire. There's, not, there's no way that things can catch on fire like they have in the past. These nine are the ways to, to prevent the burning and blazing of things. This is, these nine are what keeps things cool. These nine das are the, the summit of freedom, the highest, most perfect meaning of freedom comes through these nine insights or these nine eyes. But of course we're speaking of spiritual freedom. This is the highest freedom is spiritual freedom. Now these nine das, the final one, Atamayata, is very difficult to translate. And so we ask that you, you think about it think about it very deeply, examine it and investigate it until you realize for yourself what Adhamayata is, and then you will be able to translate it into your own language. When you look deeply into the meaning, into the reality of Adhamayata, you will see that it's the state of not being concocted by anything. It's the state of, being, of not being concocted. Concocted means to be cooked up, to be stirred, to be affected, to be under the power of things. So we could translate it, the state of not being concocted by anything or non-concoctability. But we ask that you examine this for yourself, and then you'll automatically be able to translate it into your own language. These are the pinnacles of understanding. This is the highest seeing into the basic facts of life. In For the time that remains, we ask to go back and look at each of these nine das a little more carefully. It's well worth our time to 
look more and more into them in order to understand them more clearly and deeply. The first da is anicca the state of being impermanent, which means the the, nat- the nature of things is one of ceaseless change. Things aren't solid, static entities. Their, their nature is one of flow, of flux, because all things depend on conditions. Conditions change, and so things change. This is just the natural fact of things, this constant and ceaseless change. There's no way that this change can be stopped. Things are always changing. This is called anicca The fact of impermanence is not one which is totally unknown. In fact, there has been teachers all around the world who've had insight into this. This is not the exclusive property of the Buddha or of Buddhism. The um, understanding of impermanence is common to many religious teachings. In fact, the Buddha himself acknowledged that he wasn't the only one who was teaching impermanence. He said that there is he said once that there is an araka sasada, a teacher in a distant land or distant city that's teaching impermanence just like we do. The Buddha took impermanence as central and there was, he said there were, there was another teacher in the world at the time who also took impermanence to be central. Now, it's not clear who the Buddha meant, but we, we would like to think that this could easily be Heraclitus, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus, who was living in southern Italy, made impermanence um, a central part of his teaching. In Greek, the wording is pantare, all flows, or all is flowing. So, we would like to think that the Buddha was referring to Heraclitus. But the point here is that this insight into impermanence is one very natural. It's not a Buddhist teaching, it's a natural teaching. And so this is the starting point for for all insight. So many, many people have taught impermanence. The thing is that many stopped there. They didn't go deep as deeply as we can into impermanence to realize all the implications and significance of impermanence. So we should take impermanence as a starting point, not an ending point. One, people who have a thorough knowledge of science will find this quite easy because science is giving many examples of the fact of impermanence.
Now, although things are constantly changing and flowing, they sometimes appear very attractive. And sometimes the things which are changing the most appear to be most attractive. Now, when things are very attractive, we have a tendency to fall in love with them. But when we fall in love with something that is impermanent, as soon as it changes, we suffer. When we're in love with something changing, that change brings us suffering. So be very careful about falling in love with impermanent things. Don't fall in love with impermanent things. It will just bring you more pain and misery. However, we have to be, we can't live without impermanent things. So although one has to be in contact with, one has to deal with impermanent things, do so in a way that is fully aware of impermanence. Rather than falling in love, which is a kind of blindness to impermanence, to be infatuated with something's attraction, just deal with it, use it, live with it, whatever is necessary, and then one can receive benefits from things without being burnt by them. But as soon as we fall in love, then these things become a source of suffering. We should look carefully and see if there's, until we see that all things are impermanent. Insight is to look deeply until realizing directly and fully that something is true. If we look from the outside, for example, we can look at the solar system and look at all solar systems and galaxies and universes, the entire cosmos, seeing that all the sun, the moon, all the planets, all the stars, all the black holes and quasars and everything else. Can you find any one of them that is permanent? Is there anything in this solar system or in any solar system which doesn't change, which is perfectly still and permanent? One, one won't find such a thing. There isn't anything in these in this cosmos, which is unchanging or permanent. Then when we come to ourselves, these people, our bodies, to look at our bodies, you'll see nothing but impermanence. Take the body as a whole, and it's constantly changing. And take the different organs, of the body, and they're constantly changing. And every, every cell in the body is changing ceaselessly. The elements that compose our body, the elements of earth, water, fire, and wind, or the elements of modern chemistry, whichever you prefer, these are in constant flux. It's a ceaseless flow. 
even the molecules that make up these bodies and then the atoms that make up these molecules and then the subatomic particles that make up the atoms it's a ceaseless change there's not there's no atom anywhere there's no molecule anywhere that doesn't change there's nothing that is just sitting perfectly still it's all changing transforming mutating this is the the nature of this universe from the the biggest level the biggest structures down to the tiniest to the most minute subatomic um realities you'll see nothing but impermanence this is how we study looking from the biggest to the smallest seeing that all things are impermanent now the examples we've given so far of impermanence are solely material or physical so now let's let's start over and look at impermanence in terms of the mind or psychic impermanence leading up to spiritual impermanence or the spiritual realization of impermanence now this should not be strange for you because you've been practicing mindfulness with breathing and this is our way of seeing impermanence inwardly of realizing impermanence mentally inwardly so we take mindfulness with breathing and one starts to see that the breathing is impermanent breathing in is impermanent breathing out is nothing but change the fine soft breathing is changing the coarse crude breathing is changing long breathing is impermanent short breathing is impermanent we see that all the different kinds of breathing are just a ceaseless flow <clears throat> and then all the things connected to the breathing are changing are impermanent we see that the way the breathing conditions and influences the body that this is impermanent there's nothing that remains the <clears throat> same things are ceaselessly in flux and so we we look inwardly we use mindfulness with breathing to experience inwardly the impermanence of these bodies now please don't be annoyed or flustered or anything that your meditation teacher insists that you look into impermanence with great detail when your meditation instructor keeps asking you to look at this aspect of impermanence in that into <clears throat> to keep going into this in greater in greater detail please don't feel frustrated or get annoyed or bored by this because this is the way to fully realize impermanence we look in great detail at all the manifestations of impermanence in the body 
until we act, we finally accept or realize that the body in every aspect is nothing but flow and change. And then we see on a, a more subtle level, we start to see the feelings, whether feelings of rapture or contentment, whatever kind of feeling, we go into these and we observe them in their different manifestations, seeing that all feelings, all kinds of feelings are impermanent. And then we see the things that are concocted, conditioned by the feelings, that these too are impermanent, that any thoughts or whatever that are stirred up by the feelings, these are impermanent. So we we then look in great detail at the feelings and how they are also impermanent, are ceaselessly changing, until we see that the, these feelings which condition the mind, and we see that the feelings are impermanent, and if these feelings condition the mind, then the mind too is impermanent. The nature of the feelings is changed, and so too is the nature of the mind. We look into this more and more deeply until we no longer fall in love with the feelings, until the feelings no longer have power to dominate us and enslave us. So don't, don't get impatient with your meditation instructor or annoyed when, when he or she asks you to look into these feelings over and over again in great detail, in ever more subtlety, in order to see that all feelings and the influence of the feelings on the mind are nothing but ceaseless change, but impermanence. Next we come to this stage concerned with the jitta, the heart-mind. And here we see that every state of mind, every kind of mind, every thought, every mood is impermanent. Whatever mind it is, we look at that and see that it's changing. It's impermanent. That the nature of all minds are one of flow, of change. One sees that all the kinds of minds, the delighted mind, the mind that is glad, is impermanent, is changing. The, the mind that is centered, that is the concentrated mind, this too is a flow, a flux. And even the mind that is doing the duty of letting go, of releasing, this mind too is impermanent. There isn't any mind or any kind of mind anywhere that isn't flowing and changing. So we look in ever more detail into the impermanence of mind, the impermanence of all minds and thoughts, so that we don't take any of these to be me, to be mine, to be ego, or the possession of ego. Seeing the impermanence of all minds, we cease attaching that to them as being self, of belonging to self, and then the mind ceases to be a problem. Now we come to the fourth stage, which concerns Dhamma or Dharma. Now, 
let us stop a moment and see that there are two kinds, two basic kinds of dharmas or dhammas. There's the kind of dhamma which is conditioned, the dhammas or things which depend on causes, on conditions, which are, which are dependent, or we call them conditioned things. They are sankata, which means conditioned. Then the, the other kind of dhamma or dharma is unconditioned. The things which don't depend on anything else. The things which um, have no causes, have no conditions, which don't have a beginning and don't have an end. You'll see that when we when we make this, when we see the difference between conditioned things and unconditioned, you'll see that necessarily conditioned things are impermanent. But you'll see that unconditioned things can't be impermanent. So when we use, when we say that we speak of impermanence of this constant flow, we're speaking about conditioned things things which are sankata, but that which is a sankata, unconditioned, the absolute reality, we don't speak of it as being impermanent. There's another word that you ought to know, it's the word sabhava dhamma, sabhava dhamma. Um, bhava means being, sa means, one, means self or own. And Dhamma means thing. So this means being in itself or self-being, self self-being things. Now, when we speak of things in themselves, they're the things in themselves which are conditioned. They're the things in themselves which are unconditioned. This means things that are in themselves or of themselves, by themselves, for themselves. All of these sabhavadhammas have this quality of, they have this being within them, have this, and those which are the nature of change, the conditioned sabhavadhammas, they have the nature of change. Their, their, their mode of being, their, this kind of in being of theirs is one of ceaseless, constant change. Whereas the Sabhavadhamma, which is unconditioned, its, its inner nature isn't changing, is not, is one of, of unchanging reality. So this is also worth understanding this this inherent nature or being in itself, and then the two kinds, that which is changing and that which is unchanging. If, if the words sankata, conditioned, and asankata, unconditioned, are somewhat difficult for you to understand, we can make it a little bit easier by looking at two two terms from science. These are the terms phenomena or phenomenon and noumenon. 
phenomena is plural. They're infinite, the amount of phenomena. And this can be, this fits pretty much with the term sankata or conditioned. So when we speak of conditioned things, we're speaking of phenomena. On the other hand, noumenon, the noumenon is singular. It has no plural. And this more or less fits with asankata or the unconditioned. The phenomena are ever-changing but the noumena is unchanging. It is not affected by change. So these two words from science may be able to help you. Now, everything that we are, all the elements and things that make up what we are, are conditioned things, are sankata. And we don't even have a clue what the unconditioned is. So for now, leave the unconditioned aside and we're going to look at these conditioned things because that's what we are. Everything we are and everything that we're related to, all the things that come together in our life and experience, all of these are sankata. So that's where we focus our attention. Um, none of us were not yet able to, to put our attention on the unconditioned. So then we, we observe the, all these conditioned things that are our lives. And we see that without any exception, they are all changing, they're all impermanent. And then one sees that in in being connected with, in having to exist with and depend upon these, these conditioned, ceaselessly changing things, that these things are inherently painful, that because they keep changing on us, they won't, they won't say still, they won't be what we want them to be, that they are they're inherently painful for us. Another way to look at this, which is to see their fact of dukkha, the state of being dukkha. Dukkha can mean painful. It can also mean ugly. These impermanent things are very ugly. There's <clears throat> something about them which just is doomed to falling apart this inherent quality of, of decay in conditioned things is, can be called ugliness. So dukkha means ugly or dukkha means painful. And seeing that all impermanent things have this quality of dukkha comes from seeing their impermanence. Realizing the impermanence realizing the impermanence of all the things in our lives and seeing their inherent dukkha, their inherent painfulness. One starts to find that there's, there's nothing that one can grasp 
nothing that one can rely on as being me or mine. In all these impermanent things, seeing their impermanence and painfulness, the, the thought that they might be self becomes absurd. And then one this sees more and more deeply that all these things are not self. They don't have anything about them which can make them self, which can make them me or mine. This is anatata, the realization of not-self, that all things are not-self. Now we look at everything. We look at all the things outside, all the external objects that present themselves to experience. We see that all the things outside, the trees, the animals, other people, the stars, everything, is impermanent. And we look inside, we see all the things inside, all the aspects of the body, and all the things in the mind, thoughts, feelings, memories, imaginings, everything is impermanence. Seeing that everything outside as well as everything inside is impermanent, we see that it's all inherently painful, that in these changing things, one cannot find ultimate happiness, that one will always be frustrated and disappointed to at least some degree. And then one sees that all of it is not-self. Outwardly, in nature, in the world, in the stars, in heaven or hell or wherever, everything is not-self. And inwardly, in the body, the feelings, the thoughts, the moods and emotions, everything is not-self. When one sees that everything outward, outside, as well as everything inside, is anatta, has this state of being not-self, then one is free. The mind is free because there is nothing that can trap it. The mind doesn't fall for anything ever again, and so it is free. We can cut this short by saying life is impermanent. Life, everything in life, all aspects of life are impermanent. Life is, is inherently painful and life is not self. There isn't anything in life which rightfully can be taken to be self. Everything is not self. Now if we look carefully at all this, remember this distinction we made between conditioned things and unconditioned things. Now we've been talking about conditioned things, about their impermanence, um, inherent painfulness, and the fact that they are soulless or selfless. Now remember that we also mentioned the unconditioned. Uh, the unconditioned is, we do not speak of the unconditioned as being impermanent, although we do say that it is, we do see that it is not self. Now this unconditioned 
One name for it is law. Another name for it is truth. And so we see that there is this unconditioned law or truth. If we speak in anthropomorphic or personal terms, we can call this law or truth God. But if we speak in natural or scientific terms, we call it the law of nature. The fact that all things are just naturally happening according to this law, we call that tamatitata, the naturalness, the ordinariness of things. And the fact that the law itself is called tama niyamata, the natural law, the state of being natural law. This, this natural law is the unconditioned. It does not change. Now we come to the fact that everything happens according to the law of nature. That things happen is due to conditions. That things don't happen is due to conditions. That things arise is through conditions. That things cease is through conditions. The change of things is due to conditions. There isn't anything that doesn't happen through the law of nature. That, and all of this is due to causes and conditions which brings us to the realization of itapajayata, the conditionality of things, that all things depend on causes and conditions, that all things must happen according to causes and conditions. This is the law of conditionality. That you came to Thailand was due to and through itapajayata, that you leave, that when you leave the Thailand, that will be through the law of conditionality. There isn't anything in this world or in your life that isn't happening due to and through under the power of this law of Ipapajayata. This is the highest thing. This is incredibly important. So important that in Buddhism, we say that when you see Itapajayata, you've seen the Buddha. To know the Buddha means to know Itapajayata. These lives of ours, these bodies, there's just no way we can control them or order them to be the way we want them to be. These, these bodies, these lives just they happen according to itapajayata. We don't have control over them. Our children, we can't force or control our children to be the way we want them to be because they are itapajayata. Our husbands, we can't make our husbands to be the way we want them to be because our husbands are itapajayata. Our wives, we can't force them to be like this or like that because they happen according to Tapajayata. Everything in this life is Tapajayata. We don't have the ability to control them, to own them, because they 
are dependent on causes and conditions. They're not dependent on our desires, our will, even our so-called free will. So there's only these things that happen according to causes and conditions that are under the power of the law of Itapajayada. And so all of them must be void of self. If all things are interdependent or dependent, there's nothing that is a self which is independent. There's no self-existing entities or anything like that. All things are void. They're void of self, of atta or soul. They're void of ataniya, which means connected to or related to self. They're all void of atta and ataniya, of me and mine. This is the reality of sunyata, sunyata, voidness. The formula the Buddha used to express this was ayang loko sunyo atenawa ataniyenawa. Ayang loko means this world, this world right here. Sunyo means void, free and void of ata. Atena means of of self, and ataniyenawa means of things related to or belonging, connected to self. The Buddha said that this world is utterly void of anything which is self or related to self. The world is full of things, but all of these things in this world are void of atta and ataniya. Please look deeply until realizing this fact of things and then the fires won't blaze anymore. The flames of lust, hatred, and delusion won't be able to burst out and consume our lives when we see that all things are void of self and belonging to self. And then we see that everything is just like this. It's just thus. Things are, they're just thus-wise or such-wise. That things are beyond any positiveness or negativeness that we might imagine. That things are beyond any good and evil or any duality. When we see that things are just thus, they're merely such-wise, or when we see this thusness or suchness of things, then we are able to deal with the selflessness of things in realizing thusness, then we know how to deal with things which are not self. If we don't see thusness, then we can't cope with the, the selflessness of things. But then when we see the thusness of things, that they are void of positive and negative, then we can, we can cope with their selflessness. And then none of the fires can burst out. The other day we gave examples of the different kinds of fires. There's, there's lust or love and then greed, hatred, anger, fear, worry, excitement, 
envy, jealousy, possessiveness, sexual possessiveness, and many more. None of these fires that we've <clears throat> spoken about are ignited. When we realize the thusness of things, then our way of dealing with them, our way of, of using or living with things, is such that the fires are not ignited. The eyes, the ears, the nose, tongue, body, and mind don't catch on fire. The forms, sounds, odors, flavors, touches, and mental experiences don't burst into flames when we are aware of the reality of thusness. Then we come to the ninth one, which is Atamayata, the mind that is the mind that is firm and stable in correctness, this firmness or stability of mind that cannot be shaken out of correctness. Now correctness does not mean correct in terms of some opinion or theory or authority or anything like that. Correctness just means correct so that there is no dukkha. Things are correct when there is no dukkha. And to be, when the mind is utterly fixed or firm in this correctness, then this is called atamayata. It's an unshakableness, an unmovability of mind. We think of the great mountains of the world, the Himalayas, the Alps, the Rockies, the Andes, as being huge immovable things, but in fact they're shaking and trembling all the time. Minor tremors and, and earthquakes make them shake, but there's nothing that can shake the mind that has atamayata. It's an untrembling mind, an unshakable mind that's perfectly stable in correctness. And when the mind is perfectly stable in correctness, then it can't burst into flames. Nothing can be set on fire when the mind is firmly grounded, utterly grounded in the correctness of it. And this is called Atamayata. To be perfectly centered in correctness means to be perfectly centered in blissfulness and usefulness. These two words are enough. To be perfectly balanced, to be perfectly stable or still in blissfulness and usefulness. That's enough. Then things are, everything is finished. Our life will no longer burst into flames. The world will no, will no longer be burning for us when we are perfectly centered or stable mm -hmm. in usefulness or in peacefulness and usefulness. When your life has this highest peacefulness and usefulness, then you can say to your friends that you came to Thailand as a tourist and you left as a pilgrim with the best, most excellent thing 
in your backpacks. So thank you then for being very good listeners. We thank you for your attention.